Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, mapping how navigation neurons work in 3D. And the fabrics that switch between being stiff and flexible. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Getting from A to B is a complex process. Knowing where you are and figuring out where you're going requires many different types of brain cell. Much of what we know about navigation at a neurological level has come from studies in rats, watching which neurons light up as an animal moves about a space. But there is a drawback to this, as many of these studies have been done in 2D, looking at a rat scurrying over a flat surface. But, as we know, the world is a 3D place, and life has its ups and downs. Of course, different animals have different degrees of three-dimensionality in their movement. There are animals that fly or swim, like bats or fish, dolphins, whales, etc., and they really move strictly in three-dimensional space. This is Nachum Ulanovsky from the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. This week in Nature, he and his colleagues have a paper out looking at how one particular group of neurons fire in 3D space to help an animal work out where it is. Specifically, Nakum has been looking at grid cells, which are pretty well understood in the 2D world. Grid cells are neurons which are activated whenever the animal, rats usually, traverse one of multiple locations in the room. A neuron could be activated in one location or a second location or a third location or a fourth location. And if you look at how are these locations arranged in space, it turns out that they form a hexagonal lattice, much like a honeycomb. So specific grid cells fire in multiple specific places in space, forming this regular repeating hexagonal pattern or lattice, which is thought to help an animal judge distances and know where it is. But what happens when you go from 2D to 3D? What would the pattern of grid cell firing look like? Would it be lots of hexagonal layers, one on top of the other, making an overall 3D hexagonal structure? 
Well, this has been a long-standing question in neuroscience, and Nakum wanted to find out. And in fact, there were theoretical predictions of what one might expect to get uh, in this situation, because this hexagonal lattice on a two-dimensional uh, surface, it's the best packing of circles on a plane. And what we're after is to see whether this beautiful geometry exists also in three-dimensional space. And to answer this question, we took sort of the most extreme three-dimensional navigator among mammals, which is the bat. Nakum has been using bats, Egyptian fruit bats specifically, in his research for some time now, and in this work encouraged them to fly around a large room as he recorded where and when the grid cells fired. What we have done is we've placed between 6 and 11 little spheres on which they can land and get little pieces of bananas. And they were at different heights all around the perimeter of the room. By this we encourage them to fly through three-dimensional space. And we recorded the uh, neural activity by using this wireless electrophysiology system that we've developed, this neural logger that allows to record neurons from the brain and store the data on board the animals. So by logging where in 3D space the bat's grid cells fired, Nakum and his colleagues could look to see what sort of pattern the activity took in the room. Did they find the hexagonal lattice pattern so well-defined in 2D? The short answer is that we didn't find it. We didn't find even a single neuron that significantly and convincingly showed a hexagonal lattice. So they didn't find the pattern that had been theorized. It's what we expected to get and what we looked for for more than two years. And, you know, this research took many years in part because it took us several years to realize that we are sort of looking and looking and looking at not finding this. And Okay, now we need to recompute our bearings, so to speak, and uh, rethink what we're looking for. But after a lot of head-scratching and some complex mathematical modelling, the team found that while there may not be this regular repeating pattern that was expected, the firing of the grid cells wasn't random either. What we looked at is the local distances between nearby firing fields, nearby uh, grid fields. For each one of them, I can uh, ask who are the three nearest neighboring spheres, and I can look at the at those three distances and then look at the next field and at those three nearest distances, etc. And we found that in many of those cells, there was a fixed distance or a characteristic local distance between nearby fields. Instead of being a very ordered overall state with a perfect hexagonal lattice, the team found a semi-ordered organization. There were pockets of local order where the location that neurons fired was close to others, and these locations were always separated by a fixed distance. But of course, this begs the question, why is there one pattern for grid cells firing in 2D, but another in 3D? Well, Nakum suggests that they're actually part of the same system, and it's the fixed distances between where the grid cells fire that's the key. What our results argue is that the hexagonal lattice structure is a secondary property, but what's more fundamental is actually that nearby fields have fixed distances from each other, and if you have that, then in two dimensions you would automatically get a hexagonal lattice, and in three dimensions, you'd get this semi-ordered thing. So it sort of, it puts the emphasis, so to speak, not on the hexagonal lattice in two dimensions, but on the fixed distances in two dimensions. So, after a long time wondering, it seems that researchers now have a better insight into how grid cells fire in 3D space. But of course, this is just one animal, the bat, and one particular experimental setup. Another paper out today in Nature Neuroscience looked at rats able to climb in a 3D environment and showed a different pattern of activity. 
although also not a hexagonal pattern, so there's still lots to learn about how all this works. Regardless, Nachum says that his finding might mean that researchers will have to have a bit of a rethink when it comes to working out the mechanisms of how navigation works. A lot of weight has been placed on a hexagonal system for grid selectivity that may differ from what's really happening. So it will require quite some work to produce a model that on the one hand is consistent with the perfect, beautiful hexagonal lattices in 2D, but on the other hand can produce this semi-organized or locally organized fields in, in 3D. So this is a major uh, challenge for the field, and it challenges some of the existing mechanistic models of how grid cells come about. That was Nahum Ulanovsky from the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. We'll put a link to his new paper in the show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing about so-called tunable fabrics that can change properties on command. But before that, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker. Poison dart frogs lace their body with some of the most deadly toxins in the animal kingdom. But what stops them poisoning themselves? The answer might lie with toxin sponges. The poison batrachotoxin found in poison dart frogs kills by disabling proteins embedded in nerve cell membranes. Scientists have long theorised that batrachotoxin-laden animals, like poison dart frogs or some birds, have evolved mutant membrane proteins that batrachotoxin can't bind to. But a new analysis has found no such mutations in the golden poison frog. In fact, researchers showed that captive-raised golden poison frogs do have batrachotoxin-sensitive membrane proteins, but don't succumb to the toxin's effects. The scientists proposed that the animals sequester the compound with a toxin sponge, a type of protein that sucks up the toxin before it can damage the membranes. No such protein has been identified for batrachotoxin, but the team did show that a sponge protein found in the American bullfrog can soak up a similar toxin and provide protection in the process. Read more in the Journal of General Physiology. Paleontologists have found the oldest known mint. No, not the breath-freshening kind, the money kind. The site, which was found in what's now China's Henan province, formed part of a bronze foundry that was built around 780 BC. At first, the facility produced mainly weapons and objects used in rituals. But moulds found at the site revealed that at some point it also started processing a type of large spade-shaped coin that was used as currency from the 7th to 3rd century BC in China. Radiocarbon dating of charred millet seeds in one of the pits showed that minting began between 640 and 550 BC, predating all other known active mints. Some of the moulds found were also unused, which suggests that the entire minting process, from mould-making to casting coins, occurred on the site. Read more in Antiquity. Next up on the show, I've been looking into a material that can be stiff or flexible. Cloves are great. But what if, as well as delivering style, comfort and a certain je ne sais quoi, they could give you a leg up? Imagine, for example, you're trying to lift a heavy object. Wouldn't it be great to get support from your slacks? If you think about warehouse workers that have to lift heavy weights for extended periods of time, you might think of creating 
wearable fabrics that could be stiffened or could become more rigid at will to aid in the lifting weight process while working. This is Chiara DiRaio, an engineer who's been working on so-called tunable fabrics. Fabrics that can change properties. In this case, a flexible cloth that can stiffen on command. Such fabrics can offer more than giving heavy lifting a boost. For example, imagine a new type of medical cast. Their flexible form could be draped over a broken limb and then stiffened once in place. This would allow the cast to be adjusted as the injury healed and even reused for the next broken bone. But how do you swap between flexibility and stiffness at will? Well, in Nature This Week, Kiara has a paper about a material that seems to achieve this. What we created is a new fabric that is very much inspired by the medieval chainmail armors, which can be tuned from being soft and foldable to being stiff and rigid like a solid. Like medieval chainmail, the fabric is made from lots of tiny links. In this case, they're 3D printed and made of plastic. Chiara refers to them as particles. When relaxed, her special 3D printed chainmail is flexible, but if you compress the particles together, and we'll get on to how they do that a bit later on, they lock and become stiff. As long as the particles are the right shape. You need to increase the average number of contacts that each particle perceives from neighboring particles. So the higher these contacts, the more these particles are tightly, snugly fitting together, the stiffer the fabric will get. It turns out that the little rings that make up bog-standard medieval chainmail do this pretty well, but they have a downside. If you take these two-dimensional particles, like a ring, you can stack them like a tower, and those stacks provide a lot of opportunities for particles to be in contact. However, this comes at a cost, and the cost is weight. Because if you jam-pack these rings or this square very snugly together, the fabric becomes very, very dense, almost like having a full, solid sheet. And with density comes weight. That may be fine for Sir Lancelot, but it isn't ideal by today's standards. So instead, Chiara wanted to find a shape for the particles that could make a material that perhaps isn't quite so stiff and strong, but is light enough to be worn. We focused on these octahedrons. Those have more hollow spaces. They are mostly empty. And even when you stack multiple layers of these kinds of fabrics, they are by and large 80% hollow. Chiara's fabric is made from lots of tiny interlinked octahedrons. Think two hollow pyramids stuck together. And despite the trade-off, when stiffened, the material was able to hold weight 30 times that of the fabric itself. But that's a good point. The fabric only stiffens when it is compressed, and the octahedrons lock together. So how do you pressurise a pant? Chiara's solution... sucked. For the purpose of this proof-of-principle realisation that you see described in this paper... We use a membrane, think of it similar to a Ziploc bag that we use in our kitchen, and we use vacuum pressure. Effectively, we connect these membranes to a pump and suction out the air 
so that the membrane conforms to the sheets, to these fabrics, and compresses them in all directions. Think a vacuum-sealed bag of coffee beans or rice. Chiara's solution worked well for the paper, but it was only intended as a demonstration. A vacuum isn't the most practical solution. Unless, like in Back to the Future 2, it could also dry your clothes at the same time. But enough of my musings, back here in reality, Chiara is working on potential alternatives to make the switch between flexible and stiff. We are, for example, exploring external fields like magnetic attraction between adjacent particles or tension created by fibers and pulleys that could be interwoven in the hollow space within the particles. Those actuated either by a small motor or for example, in response to external stimuli like uh, temperature, pH or light, I would expect uh, would become a lot more practical in uh, applications. And Chiara sees a lot of possible applications. We mentioned medical casts and lifting supports, but she also points to things like defensive shields or emergency shelters that could be transported easily in their flexible state and then popped up as necessary. Now, there are still plenty of kinks to work out before these tunable fabrics become a practical reality, not least how stylish they look, but Chiara has high hopes that this technology will be able to tackle real-world problems. If we could make something that truly provides uh, advances in the medical field uh, or in aiding or augmenting performance of workers or in the defence, I think I think that would certainly be exciting to me and to us and, and it would be a useful next step. That was Chiara DeRaio from the California Institute of Technology in the US. For more on stiff or flexible fabrics, we've also got a video where you can see them in action. We'll put a link to that, along with Chiara's new paper, in the show notes. This week, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, has released its newest report that collates all of the latest climate research data to assess the current state of our warming world and what might be to come. To find out more about what it says, I called up Jeff Tollefson, senior reporter here at Nature, who's been covering the story. We're recording this on Monday, Jeff, and today is the day that the UN's IPCC has released a long-awaited report. And my goodness, it makes for some sobering reading. But before we get into what's in it, maybe you can tell us, what, what is this report? So this report is the product of about eight years of work um, since the last one by more than 200 scientists. But the thing to remember is this isn't a report by scientists. This is a report by governments that's compiled by scientists. So the scientists went over something like 14,000 papers, the, the full scientific literature since the last one was released in 2013. They compile a, a report, a compendium of all of that science, what it says, what it means, and they, they hand that over to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is, as it sounds, it's a panel made up of government representatives representing um, 195 countries across the world. And so a huge amount of data that's been collated, been pulled together. Let's get straight to it then, I suppose. What are some of the headlines then in this report? Well, the main message is that global warming is real. It's happening now and we can feel it today. And it's going to get worse if we don't take action. That's been the bottom line for a very long time, but this report makes it clearer than ever. Perhaps the most shocking number is that scientists can now say with considerable confidence that the planet is warming at a rate that's faster than any time in the past 2,000 years, and that it is now warmer than it's been in 125,000 years. That dates back to before the last ice age. 
So these are some uh, very stark numbers. Well, one of the things that stood out to me in this report is that scientists are trying to update and reduce the uncertainty in what future warming might be. I mean, how has that come about, Jeff? And what, what are they thinking might, might happen? So one of the things that scientists have done is tried to constrain their models. Um, and, and one of the metrics that they use is something called climate sensitivity, which refers to how much long-term warming you would expect from a doubling of CO2. Um, the new report basically says that climate sensitivity is somewhere between 2.5 and 4 degrees, with a central estimate of 3 degrees. So that constrains climate sensitivity considerably on both the lower end and the higher end. So what that means for the models is that when climate scientists run their emissions scenarios, we have more confidence in what to expect um, in the year 2100 under any given atmospheric CO2 concentration. And what might we expect then? What do researchers think might happen? So the IPCC doesn't try to predict the future. What it does is it runs various simulations looking at different scenarios over the coming century. In some of those scenarios, humanity undertakes aggressive efforts to reduce emissions. In other ones, the emissions skyrocket. So if you look at kind of a, a central estimate in which the world doesn't really change much from what's happening today, you basically get an estimate that temperatures are likely to rise between 2.1 degrees and 3.5 degrees by 2100. That's substantially above the uh, the Paris goals of limiting warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees. Yeah, and of course, that was 2015. That was agreed. Have researchers given you a sense of whether this is still achievable? So again, the IPCC doesn't try to predict whether these things are achievable. What they do is lay out possible futures that government policymakers can use to think about the decisions that they make. But technically, if you talk to any one of the scientists who are involved in this, they will tell you, yes, it is technically achievable that we can limit warming to 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees. And the numbers are right there in, in the report, what you need to do. Um, if we just continue at, at current levels of greenhouse gas emissions, we will burn through, you know, the, the basically the carbon budget we have to remain under 1.5 degrees in as little as a decade. Um, but with aggressive action, if we basically cut emissions down to net zero by mid-century, then it is technically possible to remain under 1.5 degrees even. One thing that we've seen a lot of recently, Jeff, around the world are very specific and very catastrophic regional impacts of climate change. And this is something that's been highlighted in this report, uh, looking at, at those and the likelihood of them happening and, and, and the impact they may have. What are some of the things that have been said? So one of the big advances in this report is that scientists have come a long way in being able to document extreme weather and attribute that extreme weather to human emissions. And you can document it now at a regional level. One of the advances in this report is that you can kind of click in on any region of the world and you can see various impacts um, of extreme weather, drought. So that's going to be of considerable help to uh, governments as they consider their options moving forward. Something we've talked about on the podcast before, I guess, are maybe low likelihood, but hugely catastrophic events, you know, like sudden ice sheet collapse across the world or something like that. Now, as this report is looking at the scientific data, what does it say about things like this? This is another innovation of this report. The IPCC has been criticized in the past for being too conservative, for focusing too much on what scientists can say. And that leaves out the long tail of extremes that scientists have a harder time predicting. And like you say, this would be things like ice sheet collapse, changes in ocean circulation. It could be things like forest dieback. These are things that are harder to predict. And, you know, one of the reasons that they're harder to predict 
is that they're more likely to occur with extreme warming later in the century under levels of extremely high carbon dioxide. And this report basically says, although we think these extreme events are unlikely, we cannot rule them out. And if you're a policymaker thinking about you know, long-term risks, it should be on your radar that there are things that could happen that would be catastrophic. Even if we can't tell you the likelihood, you should be thinking about them. And it is different than the previous reports in that sense. Speaking of policy makers, then, of course, this report has been signed off by 195 governments, which shows that there is worldwide backing for the numbers and the stark warnings within it. But all the people you've spoken to when you've been reporting on this story for Nature, do, do you get a sense of, of frustration that nothing will be done, that it will be just, you know, lip service? Well, I think there's long been a sense of frustration throughout the scientific community. Um, the IPCC has been raising these alarm bells for three decades now. And, and like you say, this is a report that's been signed off on by the very same governments that have thus far, you know, failed to take the kind of action that would be needed to seriously curb greenhouse gas emissions. But one of the messages that comes through loud and clear in this report is that every degree, every tenth of a degree of warming matters. So at some point, we have to kind of rein in emissions and halt this process. This is a message that scientists tend to focus on. It really is up to us. We have the power to stop emissions, and we should have the motivation, based on the information in this report, to do so as soon as possible. Well, we're only a few short months away from the UN Climate Change Conference, COP26, when obviously governments will get together to discuss what can be done, what they will do to try and tackle this problem. Do you think this report will move the needle at all? It's hard to say. Clearly, governments have kind of woken up to this issue, at least politically. Many countries, including the UK, the United States, even the European Union, have committed to net zero emissions by mid-century. What we have yet to see is the kind of action on the ground, the kind of policies at the local and national level that will seriously begin to reduce emissions in a rapid way. So everybody's looking forward to Glasgow to see whether governments will step up with additional commitments. But in some senses, the bigger question is what happens after Glasgow? Will governments come home and really kind of take their own commitments seriously and begin to implement the policies that we need if we want to prevent warming in the future? Nature's Jeff Tollefson there. We'll put a link to Jeff's news story about the IPCC's report in the show notes. That's all for this week. If you want to keep in touch with us, then follow us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or if you want to send us an email, then we can be reached at podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.